Good evening. Good evening. Happy Lunar New Year. Yeah, already bad stuff happening today. We had that shooting in Monterey Park in California Mm -hmm. last night for the celebration. They caught the gunman, though. Yes, which is good. Yes. But I wish that we could get through anything celebratory without something, uh, something of the same happening, you know? Yes. It's like there's no piece of joy that uh, hatred doesn't come into contact with. But that's always the point of why it's said that joy is resistance, unfortunately. Right? That's why they're called terrorists. Their whole purpose is to instill terror. Yeah. So joy is completely antithetical to what they want put out in the world. What has been happening this week? I don't even remember what's been happening this week, Mel. Oh, I got notes. So here we oh, go. Nassie. Oh, Nassie. Uh, oh, I can't forget to talk about Nassie. That's right. We will talk about Nassie. But I wanted just to bring up some good news first before we get into the other infuriating points. Some good news. Um, Canada announced that they're, they're uh, on their human trials of their first um, inhalation through like a nasal spray vaccine for COVID-19. Right. I did see that. So, yeah. So that's a good sign. I mean, it's uh, homegrown, it's Canadian, and it's a lot less invasive than the mRNA vaccines that other people are reticent to use. Cuba also has a Soberana vaccine that has proven to be very effective against the Omicron Omicron variants. Um, A new study pushed out today showing that three doses of Novavax is also extremely effective against the Omicron subvariants. And Novavax announced that they're also fine-tuning their vaccine for the new XBB variants too. If I recall correctly, and I haven't been up on the research most recently, there was stuff that looked like COVID was going in through the nasal, like mucosal surfaces, wasn't there? Yes, they found that the primary place where the virus likes to attach and sit in is actually in your sinuses. Right, right. So they say that um, nasal sprays are especially effective. Uh, Nasal rinses are effective in preventing and um, using it after you may have been exposed so nasal rinses are extremely effective in shortening the how how deep I guess the virus will burrow into your nanotubes and go into your brain, right? So yeah, it's it's coming through your nose. That's where where the virus sits, right? Well, and there was that that study that came out this week as well. Um, I don't have it up as I'm thinking about it, but I have it on my uh, profile or on Project Canary's profile in the pathology journal that was looking at the uh, autopsies of 27 individuals who'd had mild cases or otherwise like in non, non uh, remarkable cases. And, but all 27, despite that and testing negative had like active COVID burrowed deep in their lung tissue. Right. So it's that viral persistence that continues to get talked about. It's interesting to see, uh, some of the research that's coming out on sort of the clinical data. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, instances in Texas now of mercurosis, like the black tongue 
Right, right, right. right? right. Yeah. Where, where they found that fungus that was happening in India last year, and they're like, what's going on? But, but, right? but that makes Typic so much sense, Mel, because India yes. did not have the sort of protection measures and the vaccine supply that we had. So it, yeah, let, let's be theoretical here again, not saying that this mm -hmm. is what's occurring, but let's hypothesize. Mm -hmm. Um, in one world where India was hit really hard when we had those waves and they saw some of this uh, immunodeficiency derived from COVID long before we did because we were sort of sheltering still. So they saw those mm -hmm. outcomes much more before we did. And let's be real, I don't think we have any idea what's going on with deaths over there. We don't have any deaths. What's, we don't have any idea what's going on with deaths here in reality when it comes to excess right. deaths. So you know, you look at some of the stuff that's coming out from Australia now in terms of the number of deaths that they've had in this first year, and it's like over a thousand or something in the first uh, three weeks of, of the year, which is astronomical, astronomical con mm -hmm. compared to where they were for the rest of the uh, pandemic. That's right, because Australia did close their borders, right? And they did sort of a soft lockdown, Um I think the only country that really did a hard lockdown was China, right? And now that they've lifted all those mitigations and protections, they, their infection rate is through the roof. Like, you can see the lineup for the crematoriums from space via satellite. You can see the lineups in China. But that's how bad it is. And we don't have a clue how... How many lives are lost? I, I mean, we've been doing this podcast for two years now. We're, this is our 50th episode. and uh, Number 50. Number 50. And you got to think about the amount of people that were still alive on this planet when we started episode one versus now episode 50. And like how many millions of less people there are now on this planet. It's just mind boggling. Our our life expectancy went from 78 years to now 69 years. Did you see, did you see the, the minimizers that were posting today about that? And they were posting about how it hasn't changed, but then they cut off from like 2017 on. <laughs> um, I think you missed the assignment and where it started to go down. Like, Okay. <laughs> I just the weirdest posts, right? Like this is, oh, yeah, this is a wild stage, Mel, and it's only the twenty second of January. I don't know what I am gonna do with twenty twenty three. This is just slapping me in the face over and over. Uh, but in good news, I decided I'm not going to my PhD graduation. <laughs> well, you don't want to uh... be with a bunch of unmasked people in a crowd. What do you mean? You know what? It, it it wasn't even about that, to be honest, in, in terms of it's nice to not have to take an additional risk by not going there. But I didn't love being in academia. I didn't have a ton of great experiences there. Uh, my supervisor, one of my supervisors was very wonderful and supported me through all of those years. But despite that support there was a lot of it that I really struggled with in terms of uh, if people haven't noticed, I have a bit of a black and white structure to my morals <laughs> and um, uh, that doesn't work very well in academia where people um, 
don't always walk that line of ethics, despite what you think of uh, academia and what people are doing in research and all those things. So it was many years of just being really disheartened of, I wasn't someone who grew up around academia. I didn't know anybody in it. I, there was no university where I grew up. We had like a community college. Um, so when I went to university, I thought this was going to be the place where I got to like grow and do these wonderful things. And I did, but that was despite academia for a lot of it. So going back there and sort of being around those people that did not support me through a lot of this. And since my grandma's death really have uh, actively not supported me, then why would I put myself around that? I, you know, like it wasn't going to be an experience where I felt supported in it or I felt comfortable being there. It was going to be something where I was going to just be essentially putting on a mask all day and, and going to, um, for the looks of it, right. To have that experience. And I mean, Mel, hell no, you know, I'm not that way by now. So that was just, as I got closer to it, it just got more and more discomfort and weighed on me more heavily. So eventually I just had that conversation with my mom who I was the most concerned about, but you know. But now you feel the weight lifted because you're like, nope, not participating in that at all. Yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah. I understand that for some people that's like perhaps the pinnacle of that or represent something to them. And I'm all for that, man. Do whatever works for you. It, the accolades, the public recognition, ceremonies and clapping and, and social awkwardness. That's, that wasn't what I really wanted to sign up for. So I'll just, uh, I'll ditch it. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'll just, I got my degree. Thanks. <laughs> I'm like the weirdo in like the rainbow tutu bypassing the ceremony and like off to go play some mini golf or something instead of go to the grad party. So, uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Plus, then I don't have to go to Kelowna, which, you know, is not my favorite place to be uh, <laughs> and all that. So, yes. So then it's off your plate. There you go. Yeah. BC still a hot mess, though, despite me not going there. <laughs> Talk about the data. <laughs> the hot mess data. What data? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we saw some more closures. Uh, Slocan Community Health Center, Port Hardy got extended until uh, February 6th, but we've seen some more pushback in terms of there was an article that came out in the last week regarding nurses and doctors being sort of muzzled within BC was the language used in the article, yes. which we've known for a really long time. That's not really a, an unknown fact, but there's there was an article that drew attention to it and then... Uh, Adrian Dix has not stated anything in response to this, which I don't think any of us would be surprised that Dix is not answering something that needs to be addressed. So we've sort of seen that. There was another article in terms of the healthcare crisis in rural BC and the closures that have been going on in, in, in Chetwind and, and we've got Elkford, those sorts of places frustrations with that because the hospitals uh, remain hit by that so much of the same except now we have these pressures where in the last week that uh, the information about Doug Ford pushing towards private health care in Ontario but 
it doesn't just impact Ontario because first of all imagine how big Ontario is in their population mm-hmm. compared to somewhere like Alberta or BC that we're in and then imagine that Doug Ford is actively going to start recruiting our healthcare workers from across Canada yes right yep the whatever in, in a healthcare crisis where everyone is getting really burnt out and being very undervalued and treated awfully in some circumstances are we going to be able to blame people if they jump ship no no um in a in a when inflation is driving up and groceries are it's bonkers right now shopping and like trying to just pay for life is wild i mean this is the problem is once that door gets open there will be it will be a wave so big that we will not be able to stop that no, it will further accelerate the collapse of our basic pillars of Canadian democracy, which is public education and public health care. I don't see how it's not going to act other than like a giant black hole where it's going to suck whatever remaining resources we have left. Right. And then essentially it will create a two tier medical system because those that can pay and do not want to wait 18 months for a specialist when they have cancer because they caught they it was a cold and they weren't aware that it's carcinogenic they're going to pay whatever they need to pay to get the treatment they need for those who can't afford it right well and this is the thing that we've talked about before is that there's one population of healthcare workers within canada right so it's not like there's magically there won't be a big growth in these workers <laughs> uh, magically when, if we if there's this push for privatization. So that will lead to this fracturing in terms of the public versus private healthcare staff naturally. And on top of that, then there will likely be a push for immigration in terms of getting healthcare workers from uh, outside countries so that they can push them through and oftentimes pay them less in different sorts of positions. But that also will put increasing pressures within our country in terms of housing and all the other things that are already impacting the population living here. And then on top of that, with additional people needing those services, healthcare services, all that, right? So it's a spiral one that people are refusing to recognize, right? Doug Ford and Ontario refusing to recognize that is the knowable path of what happens when you privatize and are not willing to uh, speak to that right now as they pave the path to that. And the most ignored, the most at risk, the, the most harmed in society will be crushed by the decision to privatize if that happens within our country. That's if they've survived this Hunger Games that's happening right now with the let it rip policy. I mean, how I don't even know how, what's our total of deaths that we've had in Canada? We just passed the milestone of 5,000 deaths, recognized 5,000 deaths in BC. But, you know, we are vastly undercounting, according to Dr. Tara Moriarty. Well, we know that even with that undercounting, that that number is still higher than it was in 2020 or 2021. And, you know, by sheer inference with the amount of excess deaths, we know that it's much higher than that. So we have nowhere good to go with this. I mean, I haven't seen any sort of decline in the death rate and we've plateaued at a very high rate of uh, transmission once again, right? And they keep saying that this is 
the optimal outcome of what they're doing. This was the plan was this plateau. Okay, now we can talk about NASA's recommendations. What is going on with hold on, the recommendations? Hold on. I'm, I'm gonna well, bring but, I'm gonna bring Victoria up for this because she was doing a bunch of reading on this earlier. Yeah, Victoria, come join us. Um, there was a report saying that if you got the bivalent vaccine in some jurisdictions, they won't allow you to have any more boosters. Um, Bonnie Henry got her hands all over it. Well, Dr. she's the Henry, head of all the CMOHs now, right? Like, I mean. And it's, 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 she's got her hands in NASA. She's got her hands uh, federally over all of the provincial people mm-hmm. and did that study on the six months without, with, with the population data, right? So uh, this isn't surprising to me, but I don't know. I don't know what the plan is for children. I don't think there is a plan for children. Like, I don't hear about any plans for children. Certainly, it's not in her awareness. And it's quite possibly because she's not a parent herself. Right? Like, um, I mean, so many people have posited as to why children have been so overlooked. But I mean, society as a whole has never really cared about kids. I mean, if we did, then <laughs> we wouldn't have kids that are living below the poverty level and without parents. And the amount of children that have already lost a caregiver to COVID is horrific. Yes, it's it's one more thing that got added into the basket of social determinants of health. It's like this compounding factor across the other intersections that our public health sort of willingly added to the pile as a burden. And we're seeing the outcomes with our hospital, Mm -hmm. with our staffing, with the price being paid with our disabled population in terms of them living in these poverty levels across inflation. It's a really hard time to watch those that are uh, the hardest hit in society because they're they're just willingly being sacrificed at this point. Yeah. There's so many parents out there that have screamed into the void of social media that their kids are experiencing more learning loss than they ever had before because they are consistently sick. Their family's consistently sick, right? So the you have these kids that are consistently sick, missing school and missing lessons. Yeah, that's learning loss. And I can't imagine being a teacher trying to teach and trying to get through the curriculum when you have children consistently being sick in your class. Right, and it, it ties back to the narratives from the very beginning in, in BC, it's Specifically, if we think to that and Dr. Henry and uh, Dr. Rika Gustafson um, in terms of their statements about schools and what they wanted to be true about schools, when we could be really cutting down those transmissions that are the, the biggest that are contributing right in hospitals that we see or one quarter of those cases in schools we've seen range anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of cases if we were upgrading simply those congregate 
indoor settings again to respirator style masks, uh, to those quality of masks, we could do so much good for the vulnerable. And that's the thing is, we wouldn't even have to do that everywhere. If we were doing the basic minimum that we could do, we could do it in these very uh, essential congregate settings, long-term care, hospitals, schools, that are essential to society going and that we have been told are essential over and over and that the workers continue to try to keep it afloat but can't do that with like this burden of sickness that they're being asked to carry over and over and over uh, for people that don't want to take those those uh, measures. And if we did those measures, then fine. At least if you were out on vacations and restaurants, then when we're in those congregate settings, we would have safety and some protection from that with, you know, the air upgrades that we could do. But we're, nobody is doing that. And it comes back to those very early statements. Because then they have to admit COVID is airborne, then they have to admit that they have to upgrade that stuff, then they have to admit kids can get sick, kids can die. No, it wasn't this simple thing. No, we need to care. Which they're saying on the surface sometimes now, uh, but without any sort of action, right? It's it's just a statement. And we're three years in, it's too late for just airy statements. It is, especially with the news that came out of Germany, back Dr. Leonardi's claim that SARS-CoV-2 and multiple infections and reinfections does damage our immune system to the point that it's irreparable. And that was the conclusion that the study from Germany came out with. We are only at the beginning, like really scratching the surface of understanding as a, on a societal level what we have done to people to these children. We have allowed them to be mass infected with a debilitating disease and the virus that just stays in their organs and in their central nervous system. It's terrifying. Uh, did you see all the coverage over Davos this week? How the elite oh, all had man. clean air? Clean air for me, but never, right? They had open windows. Not just it was clean minus air. They had COVID PCR detecting, deactivating right. card chips like those cool yes. techno people they are. Yeah, if you test positive, your your badge, the chip on your badge would deactivate and you weren't allowed into critical spaces with, with elite leaders. They had PCR tests at every turn. They had HEPA filters. They had open windows. They had respirators. They had UVC lighting. The leaders in Davos know it's not just a cold. They know it's not just a flu. They know. I guess we're no longer fringe then. <laughs> We've been advocating for, you know, clean air, zero infections for kids and zero infections for people. I guess we're no longer fringe because the elites certainly don't want to get infected either. Yeah, it's interesting when we see those clear dichotomies in the media well not really in the media because the media doesn't look at that dichotomy I was gonna say but there was a few articles about that but in reality the media doesn't really isn't gonna prop that up it's not enough dissonance Mel right we see these stories and they stand out to us because they are media stories that represent our worldview and we don't see very many of those to be honest not anymore right like so 
they really stand out to us and, and highlight to us. And we imagine that they must stand out to other people in the same way that they stand out to us when in reality they don't. Right. Um, other people looking at that story that doesn't, it doesn't agree with their worldview. It's simply going to become another piece of evidence that they simply put down into the other basket of things that disagree. And they're going to go back to gathering the information that agrees with their worldview. And that that's sort of where we're at. Like, I have real conversations with people about the outcomes of COVID in my everyday life now. And that's part of the strategy or perhaps burnout strategy that I took for this year, which I posted about, which was all I have this year is truth for individuals. I am never someone who's unkind. I never choose to do that. But when uh, someone in my office the other day was talking about how he keeps waking up with uh, like a, a sore throat, it's been happening for a while, a few weeks or something. I prefaced it by saying, I'm going to say something that neither of you guys probably want to hear, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because I've seen the research and talked about viral persistence and talked about why some people are having the recurrence of symptoms and long COVID and then went back to work. Everybody's pretty used to me being like that by now. I give more detail than I used to, but I do say facts like that just in everyday life. But that doesn't change anything, though. They haven't, it hasn't clicked in for them yet that, oh, maybe I have the viral assistance. But, but <laughs> I also want to sort of reorient us to a discussion we had probably several episodes ago, or maybe even on the New Year's podcast, where even when that evidence is coming in was when we see as it is now, that doesn't mean that people are going to choose to change their behaviors. That doesn't mean that people are going to have the same value structure that we do and choose to make the same decisions that we do to help others or to act in service or to have those values because that's not necessarily their worldview. And that's that hard, is, right? That's, that's hard. So hard. It's really hard for people who are filled with empathy all the time, who live in service, who want to uplift others, who who like feel it in their bones every day of their life, right? I've spent my life like that. But that is not most people. Most people are never going to feel it like that. Most people, it's not that they're bad people, Mel. People are just selfishly oriented. Humanity. Humanity, right? And we happen to be on a bell curve of, of these things. And that's hard, but we're watching it play out because it's not that we don't have information now. It's not we don't have research. It's just that it's simply not a priority, right? They're going to run it into the ground because that's what selfish, petty little people do. They don't plan for the future. They don't plan for emergency exits. They don't plan for that. They run it into the ground because they think that they can... I don't know, do something last minute to save it. They they believe in themselves that much that they'll figure it out or they'll survive whatever bad thing is coming, right? That's the whole basis of them not wanting to protect themselves or their families. It's the health supremacy. It's this belief that they are so unique and so special that 
Nothing but that bad was the conversation that me. came right <laughs> after I mentioned the long COVID conversation with that office mate was that they were both in their mid twenties, that they're healthy, that that they've always been healthy. My dad was healthy at thirty five before he had a brain cancer that killed him seven months later. My mom was healthy until she got COVID in August and then had a stroke. So sorry to hear that. She'd be mad if I said that on here, but she doesn't listen. So nobody tell her I said that. <laughs> she doesn't like public business out there. Um, but, but that's the thing, right? Is it's just another thing that's become like a, a risk and that, public health made it this way right like this is the perfect oh this was the perfect game the perfect chess game that we we saw every move that they made but uh <laughs> there wasn't enough of us that could could tip it over right mm -hmm. it's not that there wasn't a pool of us that didn't see every move that was being made um but capitalism and the structure of our society and, and colonization and all those sorts of things have set this up to this beautiful moment of it doesn't really matter what we see or what we know. We don't have the power. No. And they've made it that way. They've ensured to silence the critics and to emphasize and the supporters, right? They gave them their own damn talk show. Well, and that's why they continue to try to sort of push these these narratives over teachers, over sort of nurses, over the healthcare workers. Um, that despite the these articles about them muzzling the healthcare workers, that they still they feel completely confident in getting up there and continuing to not address these critical questions to the population, despite their role for the population and that it's supposed to be in service to the population we're living in a wild time right Mel? like so wild. no that we because there's no standard of truth anymore right and when we don't have a measuring stick of truth it, it's getting wild right like it's getting <laughs> wild it's it's the dystopia orson wells had predicted in 1984 the truth is the only truth is allowed is from government mouthpieces, right? Everything else does not exist. <laughs> well, and, and, and the division of, of society into this fractured sort of these fractured extremes only serves that purpose, right? Because mm -hmm. the answers to these questions aren't black and white. And we need that flexibility. We need that psychological flexibility, that willingness to compromise, all those sorts of things embedded in the community. And the fracturing that we've seen of these uh, ex extremes just serves uh, not that, right? Because it just lets people um, get into those silos and then just more effectively believe those narratives. And it's harder to break them out of it because um, these people have become trusted figures to them. But there's choice in there. This is what I've been struggling with lately. And maybe it's because we had Samantha on last time. <laughs> um, but it was really because it had me thinking about sort of 
the joining of people to incel movements or proud boys and in those sorts of groups of um I can't take autonomy away from people either for the choices that they're making here. And that's what I wrestle with most of these days now is trying to figure out, like, I don't know who to hold accountable to what level, if that makes sense. Is it, have they all have a part to play in it and no one's really admitting it or? Well, because it's, it's okay. I'll use a completely separate, but more familiar example to me. If we have uh, someone that comes to me, they're like 16-year-old youth or something. Uh, They come in contact with forensic services or whatever. And then you understand that they've sort of had this really traumatic background. One of those backgrounds that it's like, it's hard. It's not hard to understand how they ended up in the position that they're in, right? Does not excuse the behavior or whatever brought them in front of you, but most certainly provides explanation for how they got there, right? And I think of public health as the sort of negligent parents in that circumstance, of the abusive parents in that circumstance, of um, providing this environment and, and, and allowing these values and the development of these little uh, systems in society and humans in society that now are going and um, willing to sort of actively harm the vulnerable or don't want to engage in these things because of the values that public health has given them. Right? It's hard. Because <laughs> in that circumstance, I really want to hold public health more responsible. Um, but there's also choice in that, right? People people make a choice to look away at some point. Well, yeah, I mean, if you are comparing public health parents the difference however is that public health is getting paid they are not ignorant they are choosing to be ignorant and choosing ignorant policies that's the difference good call they've had they've had tons and tons of opportunities to engage people on all sides of the argument and learn as much as they can because their the whole job is to learn as much as they can to make the best decision that is supposed to be Mm. that is the ignorant ignorant versus negligent is i think what you're getting at which is yeah i would see them as much more negligent in terms of um if it was parents that sort of had actively knew that they were doing something wrong and had the ability to do it otherwise i'd hold them much more responsible which in public health is that circumstance right they have Mm -hmm. accessibility to the information and they're choosing to manipulate it and sort of right uh, change it to the population, the messaging. So it's sort of like we've been kidnapped and we're like being kept in the cupboard and for being gaslit by the kidnapper at this point. Is that, we are. Is that closer? I think that's closer because <laughs> they purposely knew they were doing harm. They wrote a study about it. They approved their own ethics knowing they were causing harm so they could publish their study, knowing they were purposely seeding the virus in schools and spreading it and removing all mitigations, protecting our children. And then they studied the population effects. Uh, Well, let's come back to that. During all this time that they're studying it, the premier takes the FOI request and makes charges for them. And an article comes out on the 19th that says... There was an 80% drop in FOI requests from media outlets after the fee came in. Yeah. I 
And they knew about long COVID by 2020, as Jennifer Hyten found out from her FOI request. They knew, right? They knew it was airborne when, when especially when they gave us, you know, we, we knew we had that the documents. Yeah. From June 2020, we had those Public Health Agency Canada documents, right? And we right. knew from that point they had all that information. None of this is a surprise. No, we we are we are kidnapped and we are locked in, we are locked away and locked in a room. It's like that book, Room. Did you read that book? I don't about think so. This girl, she was kidnapped, age of fourteen. She was only like several blocks away from her parents and she was kept in the shed in his backyard and she was raped repeatedly and had his baby and she raised this child in this little garden shed and they made it into a movie room okay i will check that out <laughs> got real intense it got real intense oh uh, i put in the nest i remembered it this time it's not a nook it's a nest Oh, there's um, Victoria's. Uh, yeah, so that's a post about the NACI recommendations, which has pretty much told us that uh, they're just going to let us continue to free fall into the uh, COVID cesspool. Uh, they pretty much have a statement in there that they, you know, to have your uh, bivalent in the fall, but there's nothing recommended after that. And the provinces will be sort of left responsible to this, which... Yes. So federals ending all their federal stuff and going to hand everything to the provinces, which, as you can imagine, is going to go very poorly for some provinces over others because we've seen clear issues arising. We know that the rapid test and the mask program is set to end federally as well next month. So there's all this winding down, despite we see just as many deaths as ever from COVID. So that's pretty cool. So we're still in what we started in September 2020 with Dr. Bonnie Henry, which is we pretend that nothing is happening and we just go ahead with our plan. Uh, and that's happening worldwide now. Yay. Right? Like hospitals are uh, overburdened. Right? Um, they're just, it's going to be a struggle for sort of healthcare to keep up, especially with these pressures that this attempt at privatization is sort of happening in Ontario. I hope with every bit of my being that we continue to push back as a society because, oh, the prices that will be paid. And it's who not just it. in Canada, though. It's happening in the NHS in the UK. They're pushing yeah. for privatization in the UK as well. It's a global phenomenon. I mean, what a surprise when we put... When we put these diddle dudes in the position of country heads and they hang out and do their diddling for the last five years with Sir Diddler Trump, um, this is what we're left with, right? Is a bunch of uh, people that want to sell our countries to the highest bidder and piece our countries out to the highest people willing to pay and circle jerk around at their meetings that that are as safe as can be for them and uh we're left holding the bag right but it's also especially targeted for countries that belong to the commonwealth and i i honestly believe it has something to do with the queen being gone right and now that we have a king charles right and he's not going well, to fight for our public health but 
but let's let's zoom out even and and think about sort of the macro relationship there in terms of um, when any sort of institution loses sort of its head of state or its source of institutional knowledge, that all these sort of uh, tightly held relationships that had been uh, pieced together over decades and years and massaged and uh, someone who literally had the knowledge of it for 70 years at the tip of her fingers, that suddenly that is gone, yes. right? So there's all these openings for these changes across all these systems. And we've seen a push for it anyway in the last years of, of countries wanting to remove themselves from the Commonwealth. But with um, Charles in there and him being just a total noodle, just, he's just a wet noodle, right? Like, I don't <laughs> yeah, even know I what to that. think about that man. <laughs> like, um, there's just, it's prime time for these sort of uh, narcissistic, egotistical leaders to try and turn their countries into these uh, for-profit places that they can uh, trade to their their fellow countrymen when they go to these big meetings, right? Like, that's the thing. These are... This is so so above our heads in terms of the people making these decisions, but we continue to carry the prices of them on the ground. Well, yeah, I mean, every citizen has a price on their head. We we all generate some sort of well, and you wealth. look you look at the wealth and the gains that have been made in corporations, and that we have not made any sort of intense taxation plans for that just boggles my mind because we have, uh, you know, in the last report, like disabled people represented 41% of our, our population in poverty, right? We have maximum disability amounts of CPP is like $1,500 a month and rent uh, for one bedrooms. It can go to like $2,500 in Vancouver. We are, we are tearing apart our country. We are penalizing poverty. We're going to criminalize it too, I'm sure, even more than we already have. And we are headed for just a terrible time financially. So I don't know what our country is really going to look like, to be honest, in like five, ten years. And that was always my concern. It wasn't now. It was five, ten years from now. Yeah. I don't want to be the United States. We always run the risk of, you know, going into a resource war, too, right? With climate change. Well, well, Mel, we haven't even... Doomsday glacier, running out of potable water, running out of arable land. I mean, where do we start? Like, are we We going to lose our health care before it goes max or is it at the same time? I don't know. We've been so... We don't even touch on climate change often on this show because it's like (laughs) the immediate shit is so bad. That when you sort of add climate change on top of that, <laughs> it becomes so unmanageable to think about where we're going to be. Well, that's why people turn their brains off and they're like, I can't think about it. Right. That's like the, that's the Edmonton, self-protective reaction. In Edmonton, we've had one one cold snap that was like six days. It's been such a strange winter and not cold at all. And everyone's like, yeah, this is great. I'm like, this is not great. This is not great, my friends. I don't love this. But there's we can't even we can't even as humanity finger figure out three months ahead of time. Like one variant ahead of time. So we're pretty screwed for climate change, I would say right now. 
Victoria, I saw you came on in here. Did you want to speak to that nasty stuff that I was talking about? Yeah, um, I thought I would give it a go. My brain's not at its most organized, but I thought I would try to skim the document with you guys, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the things that stood out to me right away were that, um, sorry, just to start here, we're, we're talking about the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations um, guidance for vaccine booster doses, initial considerations for 2023, which was published two days ago on January 20th, 2023. So um, yeah, no boosters currently recommended beyond the fall 2022 bivalent vaccines. Uh, immunization plans for 2023 are largely at the discretion of each province as it stands with um, with uh, the committee reserving the ability to provide updates in the meantime, of course, and additional direction. Um, and Dahlia Hassan uh, posted a tweet as well, which I've linked in the nest which highlights concerns for kids out of this guidance, which is that six-month-olds to five-year-olds have no booster dose recommendations, uh, where the U.S. has been administering them since December of last year, and that five- to 11-year-olds only have one booster dose recommendation after the primary series. And she asks, why are kids being shut out of protection from severe illness and death? and says that vaccine equity is when all people, including children, have fair access to COVID-19 vaccination. We know that a lot of those kids aren't able to protect themselves in some of the ways that older people can, <clears throat> excuse me, like with respirators, um, and a lot of them don't have access to clean air indoors either. Um, going through the document, the preamble always sort of indicates that the committee um, has a lot to consider, including economics, always listed ahead of ethics, <laughs> quality, feasibility, acceptability. Um, it also reminds us that recommendations might differ from what's set out in um, product information from Canadian manufacturers of vaccines. And it also has this interesting bit about um, the committee members and liaison members conducting themselves within the Public Health Agency of Canada's policy on conflict of interest um, and says they do a yearly declar sorry, declaration of potential conflicts of interest, which I found interesting as well. Um, a couple other things I noticed, I'll try to go quickly because I know we don't have a lot of time. Um, they noted that there's no strong evidence of seasonality of COVID-19. Um, emerged to date, which is interesting because we've heard differently from uh, health officials across Canada. So I thought it was gone in the summer. Yeah, apparently not according to the data, according to this document. <laughs> um, Damn, COVID gets us again. Yeah, they also remind us that the current goals of the Canadian COVID-19 pandemic response as of February uh, 14th of 2022 is to minimize serious illness and death while minimizing societal disruption as a result. <laughs> oh, Victoria, Dr. Bonnie Henry is singing <laughs> to me, isn't she? 
That's right. And the second goal is to transition away from the crisis phase towards a more sustainable approach to long-term management of COVID-19. So these are our guiding goals. This is the Canadian COVID pandemic response goals since February of last year. Can someone define to me whether crisis means there's more or less people dying? Because I'm very confused by what we're trying to do with this pandemic. Right. And even as we go through this document, like they they talk about um, they talk about, you know, which populations are at increased risk of severe outcomes. You know, older adults are the most likely to experience severe disease. They reference ICU admissions, hospitalizations and death rates. But we know that the way we get this data starts with, and yes, of course, older people are, are at higher risk, but so are other people. And other people are ending up in hospital for reasons related to COVID-19, but are not getting tested. Older people are more likely to get tested because, for example, in British Columbia, we only test people when we expect that the results would actually change their course of treatment as defined by the BCCDC. So we know that the people who are most likely to be eligible for Paxlovid will will be more likely to be tested, right? Well, and you can expect to because of the 30-day statement regarding hospitalizations and death because they're not counting that data outside of 30 days. Those who are older and more immunocompromised are going to be the ones that die faster, go to hospital faster. So we're going to even let, be less likely to count those uh, less less extreme deaths like the or the more extreme deaths like the 30 year olds where it's usually taking some time before they see some decline in their health and then see the subsequent reactions later or have reinfections and then die from those so those deaths at which a huge portion right now you know are probably linked to reinfections and poor health and all that sort of stuff that's carrying on from covid initial infections none of that's included in the data as we know it so it's really funny that they continue to reference the data that we know has been culled for the last 18 months and represents a tiny 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 portion and only those that are essentially going to hospital with their first infection right so it that's... all the data is just bunk it's just bunk because we can't measure what we don't actually account for. And the fact is that Canadian data about the pandemic and, and the impacts of the pandemic across Canada is so skewed nationally because of such poor data collection provincially and territorially. So we know that this data is unreliable. Like today I was looking at the vaccine um oh my gosh, you guys, the vaccine percentages for all age groups, it's linked within this document across Canada. It's, the word coming to mind right now is pathetic. <laughs> and I say that because I don't blame the people for the lack of uptake. I blame, um, you know, the public health officials and government officials who failed to communicate the risks and impacts of COVID-19, um, as well as the you know, the way that we need to protect ourselves. And so it's just, it's really um, sad. So they, they have a couple words of caution and then we talk about hybrid immunity. So this is a red flag and I'll try to go, I'll try to rush through this again. I know you don't have a lot of time. Um, they do acknowledge that vaccine protection has been shown to wane over time um, with protection against severe outcomes persisting longer than protection against symptomatic disease. And that 
the duration of protection against severe disease for more recent variants and new vaccine formulations is not known at this time and continues to be monitored. Um, but then we get into hybrid immunity. And what's alarming to me is that the citations in this document include Canadian, uh, Canadian research and international research that's really bolstering this hybrid immunity concept that we've discussed lots in spaces like this, um, where here it says evidence to date shows the vaccine effectiveness is higher in those who have been both vaccinated and infected when compared to those with prior infection alone or vaccination alone. Um, and there's also this bit here. There are Canadian data suggesting that vaccine protection may reach a plateau for adults with hybrid immunity. And the benefit of additional mRNA vaccine booster doses may be marginal. That's very alarming to me. Um, Sounds like they have no intention of giving anyone any more boosters. <laughs> wow. Right. It, it's, it's really alarming. What they're doing is they're basically setting it up for provinces to allow for as long an interval as they deem necessary. And, you know, of course, leaving room to <laughs> intervene if something horrible should happen. And, of course, we would argue what's horrible is still unfolding all the time. This um, is right on cue, though, right? Like. This isn't surprising. This is right in line with everything they've been doing, including taking away the PCR testing to then providing it to rapid tests to now phasing out rapid tests, not allowing the Paxlovid, pushing this hybrid immunity, right? This is like the final phase is where they actually uh, just push it out there and we go to COVID as COVID as flu, right? Where we just pretend nothing's going on. That's right. And there's some other hints in here, like, you know, there's some some suggestions that um, administering these vaccines concurrent with another vaccine, like a, a seasonal influenza vaccine, might have the potential to increase program efficiency, might increase immunization rates. Um, so there's a hint there that we might be talking about an annual shot, but we don't know. Um, and then there may be variability in how each province, territory, and community assess the risk and responds to the need of their people. And again, this is like one of those public health lines that it sounds good and we should have opportunity to respond as needed in different communities. For example, our high-risk um, Indigenous communities, we should, for example, be able to expedite things out to um, vulnerable people. But what this actually allows them to do is shirk their responsibility to all of us, including and especially the most vulnerable, right? Well, it's not even just individual public health now. It'll be Alberta public health, right? BC public health. It's going to be their own brand of shit stick, which we already see. Um, it, it's just leaving the door open for them to allow the provinces to do exactly what they've done with everything else, which is shit the bed, Right. It, they have all this money, all this stuff that they were provided. They didn't follow through. And unfortunately, this is an avenue that's going to give them more power with these things that may cause a lot more havoc in terms of we may see provinces that uh, require certain vaccinations for school or campuses and other provinces choose not to. Uh, Alberta, uh, I can see that happening, right? Um, it's... It's also planning and giving the uh, 
giving the thought to people once again that are looking in on this, people that are not really apprised of what's going on, that simply hear Nassie talking about this and stating that, well, we don't have a plan past fall 2022. It's sort of going to be up to provinces. Well, again, they're they're putting out this narrative to the public that this is okay, right? Fall 2022, it's going to be fine. There's not going to be because what's happened the last three seasons in the fall, we've seen huge influxes of things as schools come in and we've seen big pressures on hospitals. So this is them putting the narrative out there that, well, this isn't going to be this fall, right? Like everything's going to be fine. There'll be nothing to manage. Uh, provinces are just going to be able to sort of implement whatever they need. It's them continuing this narrative on and boosting it that there's nothing to worry about with COVID and we're continuing on with our plan. And this is what Bonnie Henry has done pretty much from the exact start when it came from making that phased school return approach. Uh, but when it came to it in August 2020, that was sort of pulled out from under the rug from all the parents and full steam ahead on her plan. And it has been ever since, right? And this is now the national strategy. And I don't think we should be surprised because we saw... <sighs> We saw the provinces meeting in terms of these CMOHs and then the similar pushes across 2021 towards having these different sorts of data set, the with and for COVID and changing the way that we calculated things. And then the eastern provinces dropped their COVID zero and started pushing the exact same narrative. And now it's coming this sort of national response, right? We're over COVID this is done. We're ending our national programs. This is something that's going to be managed provincially because it's no longer a pandemic. Right? That's, yeah, this is no longer supposed to be front and center in the public's, you know, um, perspective. They don't want it to be front and center in discussions about public health. They want to move on. Um, if it's okay, I just want to wrap up the last, like a couple of points from the last pages because it is a long document, but there's a couple of different routes that they lay out for possible administration, um, as well as when to expect that we can hear an update from the committee on further advice and a couple of research priorities. So I'll just cover that really fast and that'll be the end of this document <laughs> just while we're here. Um, so these are the kinds of words they're using. Considerations regarding potential future booster programs and planning. With the inherent uncertainties around the evolution of the pandemic, it is unclear when the need for additional vaccine boosters will arise or to whom booster doses should be offered in the event that they are needed. Uh, of course, monitoring evidence, yada, yada. Um, product options for booster doses could include additional vaccines as they become available. By the way, Novavax is not mentioned anywhere in this document. Everything is um, bivalent mRNA is the is the booster recommendation beyond the primary series um, through and through. So I found that interesting. I can't. I'm not the best person to speak to the fact that Canada was preparing to. Uh, manufacture Novavax, and we don't know what's happened since then. There was a lot of investments. Now we're not even seeing it included in this document, so that's interesting. Um, there are a number of options for the timing of possible future booster doses if additional booster doses are required, and these include the following. There's four options. Offer additional booster doses at a fixed interval from the previous booster dose. Offer them at a fixed time of year, 
offer them based on evolving epidemiology or some combination of the above. And as far as when we'll hear back another update from this committee, um, they acknowledge that significant preparations occur every year for the flu campaign. So they will endeavor to provide further advice in advance of fall of 2023. And two research priorities that jumped out to me, further evaluations of the optimal interval between dose administration, as well as further evaluations of the optimal interval between infection and vaccine dose administration, and further evaluation on the optimal timing and trigger for the initiation of potential future booster dose recommendations, as well as evaluation of potential risks associated with providing booster doses earlier than necessary. So I'm really concerned about the priorities for research of our country um, as far as what we're doing with vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines. The precautionary principle is just like, I don't see it anywhere in this document. And I appreciate your patience with me going through that. It is really long. I haven't had a chance to do a, a thread, but, you know, it's not, it doesn't... <laughs> It just leaves so much, it just leaves so much to the discretion of the provinces to continue politicizing this, to continue using a sort of as an experiment uh, as far as intervals between doses, um, which, you know, it, whether we even get one was fall 22 or was fall of last year, the last booster recommended until fall of this year. That's, you know, it's very concerning. And what about our kids? What about the fact that there's a difference between accessibility in the states compared to here, um, I find it very concerning. Well, and let's remember that Dr. Bonnie Henry never actually answered any questions about the school study. She just avoided pressers for weeks after that, and then they avoided actually answering the questions about that. So I don't doubt that there's more studies going on. We do know from the, the things that we've seen in the papers that have come out that for some of the studies, she simply waived the ethics review for it because as the PHO, she could do that, which I think we need to revisit that policy, my friends, maybe a little bit. Um, but uh, she's been waiting a while. So I want to just throw the mic out to Cindy and, and check in with how things have been going. Oh, hey, no, I just uh, requested to be a speaker when we we're talking before about the state of how things are going with the climate and um, COVID and everything else that it sounds, you know, like um, more and more people should just come on out and join me at the ranch and forget about trying to adapt to society any further. You know, it's um, from a place of privilege that we sit here and, and enjoy just a COVID free life and, you know, and, and don't even have to worry about it. Um, lots of sacrifices without, you know, doing things in public, right? Uh, but the longer I do this, the less I miss it, actually. You know, sometimes I'm like, oh, it would be nice to ABC. And I'm like, oh, wait, I can do that virtually. I can get the same thing here. Yeah, I don't have to be in person. So it's interesting because I don't think there's going to be a mass pivotal change that puts the attention back on COVID. Um, unless we get a variant that's uh, recombinant, that's just like super deadly. 
you know, and people are dying in the street type of thing. But uh, it's interesting with the vaccines too. I think basically that document that Victoria just uh, described is like, we don't know. They're basically saying, we don't know what the hell the variants are going to bring. So we're just going to like do nothing and uh, we'll just see what happens. We're not going to say anything. And really, they don't have anywhere to go with it because, to be fair, there is pretty solid evidence about the mRNAs plateauing. So if they aren't going to boost because the variants are so immune-evasive and it's really not even a clinically relevant boost in antibodies, it, it doesn't make sense to boost, right? Thank you so much for bringing that up, Cindy. Could you do you have any new information or what the most current information is about Novavax as a booster right now? You know, so far I've been looking for something I can share. I've been in uh, um, a few Zoom meetings uh, with people talking about Novavax. Novavax themselves as a company, the science is brilliant. The communication is dismal. They're horrible and they're so slow getting everything everybody wants, right? They had the best efficacy and it was the leading vaccine coming out of the chute when they were developing vaccines at the beginning of the pandemic. But because they were so slow in all the other areas and because unfortunately it is a business and a cutthroat business at that, you know, Pfizer and Moderna lobbied their way to the top. Um, when the scientists were looking at the data going, Novavax is exceeding all of our expectations and they're just, they, they're miles ahead of this mRNA competitors. You know, Can I so- just say that Bonnie Henry never seemed to like Novavax and I'm not surprised it's not in the NASI document. That's all I have to say. Bonnie doesn't seem to like science, so that makes sense. She does not like the data. (laughs) Right? Yeah. She wants to reinvent the wheel and think she's going to get her picture in a textbook. But, you know, it's probably not the textbook she's thinking about. Yeah, she's just awful. You know, but it's, um, so it's sad because it, it really, it really has the ability to be a pan-coronavirus vaccine, depending on what kind of mutations we get. The XBB variant's concerning because it's so far off. Its ancestors, its branch is just way out there. So it's like, hmm, is this still going to be effective, right? And in the Zoom meetings I, I was in, Uh, It was too soon at that point to know because there was not enough data on people who had had Novavax and the XBB infection. So we're still waiting for that. But uh, there is a meeting coming up this week on Wednesday where they expect to do have some preliminary data. So I'm kind of excited to see what they have found out. So that's exciting, but it's still dismal, right? It's just like, well, can we do something? You know, and they're still working on the mucosal vaccines. China had a very interesting um, vaccine that you literally huff, you inhale it. Oh, yeah, I saw Naomi take that. Oh, um, 
I don't know if I know Naomi. Naomi. I can't. I can't. I think she blocked a bunch of people. She, I think she unblocked me. But yeah, no, no I saw that video too, where she <laughs> went in and inhaled the. It, she, it was in a cup. They gave it to her in a cup. Yeah, <laughs> it is in a cup, and and uh, it, but it's made of the same base formula as their original vaccine in China the Sinopharm. So I don't know how effective that's going to be. So I would love to see if there's a difference because it's like getting right to the bottom of your lungs, right? And then it's going to go and produce a mucosal immunity from that point. So that is exciting to review and watch. I'm excited for that. Oh, you mean the cyberpunk girl who blocked everyone? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, she, I got mask blocked and her mask blocked there too. I didn't know she did that. Oh, okay, that's cool. I'll have to go troll her from like just Google search where it doesn't matter if you've been blocked because you can still see everyone. <laughs> yeah, she she took one of those, the, the breathing ones. It was really interesting to, to see. I, I don't know. I continue to work in community health so i have just gotten whatever vaccines i can get my little hands on the world definitely is strange and it's weird to work in those settings it's weird to worry about a lot of other people's health more than i think they do on a daily basis if that makes sense um but i've sort of built my little cozy space with my air filter and i i wear my my good masks my respirator masks and do my thing and I'm still doing a good job at work. And that's sort of what I hope to continue to do. I hope that stays sustainable. I think we'll find out in the coming months what that looks like within Alberta and how they, I'm worried they're going to get in a pissing match with Doug Ford for privatization, to be honest. And that will, you just know it's next year, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. You you can feel it. it. You can feel it coming. And it's, uh, I am, when that hits, it's where probably more of my decisions will be made. Um, public health is always where I've wanted to be. I just planned to live my life in service. I hope that I can continue to do that in public health. But I think we have a lot to see. I think it is only the 22nd day of January. And this year has already been swinging us around by the tail. And I don't think that we have seen the end of that by any means by any means um just just in terms i just want to draw attention to the fact i don't know if anybody else has noticed this but it's been on my mind the just sheer amount of domestic violence and family annihilators in the last month has been blowing my mind and i just need to draw attention to the fact that women continue to be the most at risk in their own home And it is blowing my mind, the violence that we are seeing right now. And it is not surprising as the financial distress of this situation hits. We are going to continue to see this doing because when financial stress enters a picture, domestic violence often just gets worse. It's just so concerning. So concerning. That that and the neurocognitive effects of COVID literally on the brain, right? Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. I I wouldn't want I don't envy your position. I can definitely see that increasing. Yeah. Well, and just in the news, the amount of the amount of uh people, men that have killed their wives just in the last twenty two days that I have seen on the news in North America is 
shocking. It the should be shocking. They're their cho- children. Yes. yes. Just, just so many children. And, uh, gosh, just look out for signs and, and hold someone's hand if you can in that moment, because it's scary out there. And to everyone that says the question, uh, why don't people leave? Well, it's because they get killed when they try to leave. Okay. Because a lot of these women were in the process of trying to, for, of mentioning the divorce or of uh, getting ready to divorce these people and then they get killed. So these are impossible situations that these people are often in, as we well know. And uh, yeah, if, if you come across these stories, keep your judgment to your damn selves, please. Nobody needs to hear it. Just terrible. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Victoria, what's up? Yeah, I just, I want to acknowledge that first before I um, make another comment, because I know that, I know that a lot of us who are tracking the impacts of the pandemic really closely are also happen to be really sensitive to injustice um, of all different kinds. And so whether that's the environmental injustice that you guys were talking about earlier, colonial damage done or um, domestic violence. I just, um, I haven't been um, paying close attention to that crystal myself, but there's other news happening that I'm finding particularly hard to shake right now. And the sort of persistent, consistent stress level of all of this in the periphery doesn't help. (laughs) Um, And I just wanted to say, Cindy, I really appreciated you raising that there are very valid reasons for the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations to take a pause, that there is actually a lot of uncertainty with the new variants that are so um, evolved that we don't necessarily understand what's going to happen or what's going to be effective against them. I appreciate you raising that because, you know, when I create a thread about this, like I, I tried to um, share it very neutrally. These were the things that stood out to me um, and didn't go into great detail. But I think that's important to remember. It's really unfortunate that our provincial decision makers have taught us that when the evidence does come to them, that we can't trust them to make decisions in our best interest. And so that is really concerning for me as far as who is going to steer the ship for us going forward and what's going to happen in the next year. Because, you know, we like to hear, they they like to say that they're being watchful um, and monitoring, but we've seen so little so little preventative action happen. And the other thing is we wouldn't be so, um, you know, afraid of losing the lifeboat of vaccines or having them delayed by a month if we knew that we had all these other measures in place because we shouldn't be hinging our success on vaccines alone. We need clean indoor air. We need high efficacy masking. We need um, broadly accessible public testing. We need good information to make decisions. We need the public to actually understand why this is an infection worth preventing. And we don't have those things in place. So that is why we look at a document like this and a layperson like me is so alarmed to see so much 
um, discretion in the hands of, you know, people that we can't trust to make good public health decisions for us. They make politicized health decisions for us. So. And they're always behind, um, especially in Canada. Like the competency level isn't there. I just, you know, imagine an office full of people running around with their hands up, not knowing what to do and trying to copy someone else's homework. Yeah, because they always just seem just woefully, tragically behind. You know, even when they get directive from PHAC, there's the fact that they have their own autonomy in each province just makes things so much worse, especially when you get people like Henry and Danielle Smith up at the helm. Now we have Preston Manning here going to do his review of how the pandemic was handled. <laughs> like, piss off, you old fuck. Uh, we you're already biased you've already had a non-profit you know complaining about it no one cares like, we don't want to hear your bias report you're being paid a quarter of a million dollars for you're just padding pockets it's so it's so obvious you know and the best thing we can do while we're waiting for people to act on our behalf because they're not is just continue to try to advocate for that clean air you know, because the quicker we can get to a John Snow position where we are cleaning the air, just like they had to to really pressure um, for to clean the water, the further ahead we'll be for ourselves and our children, you know. Well, and I think there's, there's, I always find it good to recognize that a lot of the pandemic maybe an understanding it or processing it that I think has brought us perhaps to a different place than other people is recognition of, of the grief associated with it in some level, right? Like I, I just understand, you know, I'm choosing to stay in public health and that comes with risks, but I also know like I'm never going to get on another airplane with the exception of probably if one of my very close family members is dying and I need to go see them. Like that's, I'm not going anywhere that way. Um, I'm not going to uh, probably eat in restaurants with the exception of very, very few um, opportunities where if it means something for like a job opportunity or those things, right? Like I understand what my life looks like moving forward and I've accepted that because that means I've accepted what the world looks like right now and in order for me to feel like I'm not contributing to harm to other people those are the ways that I can minimize the harm that I cause not knowing what those transmission chains look like and with everybody choosing to be irresponsible around me in most cases um most people have not even come close to recognizing that they have to change, right? If we think about this in sort of the trans theoretical model of, of, of change and, and uh, the stages of change, when we have people come in for um, any sort of change, really, you can apply this to anything in life, uh, a, a good healthy change that someone wants to make, right? So let's say smoking cigarettes someone comes in and they have the goal of smoking cigarettes. But when they're in the very first stage, which is pre-contemplation, uh, when someone's in that stage, they don't want to change yet. They're not interested in it. And when someone's in that stage, if you say to them, you need to quit smoking, their immediate response is going to be like, I'm going to go smoke more. 
right? Like, because they're already not motivated to change versus someone who's in that sort of uh, contemplation stage and action stage. When you have conversations with them about that, it's going to be different, right? So having a conversation with us about being willing to wear a mask every day is very different because we've normalized that conversation versus having that that conversation with everybody else who's been maskless for like eight months right now. And that's part of it too, is that like, we've been living in very different worlds and engaging in very different thought patterns. And uh, it's, we're seeing the struggle to connect those two things right now as well, I think, in sort of everyday life. And that's something I try to experiment with on a daily basis right now, because as I've said, this is 2020 is my year of truth. So I sort of see what happens on a daily basis as I tell people the really like hard facts about COVID and, and sort of uh, twice in the last week. Uh, so I was giving a presentation to a bunch of residents, psychology residents that will be uh, finishing their PhD residency. And then was talking to a, a, fr- a group of friends and I really laid the the truth about my experience with COVID, which I deadpanned and was like, well, I listened to my grandma suffocate over the phone after she was alone for seven months. That's That was my experience with COVID. And then uh, my family member got COVID four months ago and then had a stroke and just very uh, truthfully told them what my experience has been. And I do that with what the research out, outcomes are and you know what? I have to say, not a damn thing has changed despite my approach. (laughs) So I'm lost in it. I keep trying strategies. And if I find any that work, I'll share them. But we're just in different planes of existence. And I'm trying to find the ways to connect that right now and bridge it. And we've, I think it was really interesting speaking with Samantha last week in terms of the strategies and thinking about that in terms of disengagement and, and like, what are the strategies for that? And how can we perhaps utilize some of those models that they're using for that type of extremism and apply that to sort of the community within COVID? And can we, can we utilize some of those, those same strategies that they're using for, those sort of white supremacy ideals in the Proud Boys and apply it at the COVID level? Um, And if so, how do we sort of, how do we do that? That's fascinating. How would that look like for disengagement? I mean, how do you de, how do you de-radicalize a a full-on person who's bought the shoes, who's bought the necklace, who's bought the seeds? Like, how do you... Well, that, that comes back to that stages of change, Mel, because what when we're operating on those different levels what we have to recognize is is the way that we're engaging with each other is because we're like well into the action of change and like maintenance and sort of like growth past maintenance phase that's what many of us are in but um if we stopped you know everybody paused and actually you know read about pre-contemplation and the fact that when you engage directly in negating that people want to do the opposite right like people don't want to be told what to do especially in our society so pre-contemplation is all about um sort of curiosity with the thoughts about it curiosity about these things so let me give you an example uh that we talked about in uh in clinic once which is an extreme example but is is a sort of a nice one of how you'd use this so a parent is there and they're in pre-contemplation about any sort of substance use or alcohol use 
Um, so they're not interested in changing. And they're sort of talking about uh, a story uh, where they were using a lot of substance alcohol and their their one-year-old son was sort of sitting on the stairs and then they, they fell down the stairs like over on top of the child and upset them and they were crying. So as a as a therapist, if you're utilizing this this theory of change, the way you wouldn't address it would be, you know, immediately that reaction of, like, wow, that must have been really bad for your kid. Like, they must have felt really bad. Can you imagine how they felt, right? And some people would go to that because that's how they would think. Um, but that's not how you would engage when you're utilizing that that theory of, of models of change and pre-contemplation. It would be like, oh, like, you fell right past them and they got upset. Well, oh, what would they be upset about? Right? Just like engaging very neutrally with the material and getting them to sort of explain it and come through it. And that was very similar to sort of what Samantha was talking about last week, which was really interesting. And I saw it in that same sort of way of where you could utilize that, um, those strategies, but I don't know how we make use of the COVID information with that. That's still sort of what I've been, what I've been thinking about. Cause I don't, I can't see it engaging in the same way because of the, uh, breadth which which public health has fucked us but i'm still thinking about it so ideas welcome what if you fed into what they already believe and go off of these extreme grifters and say things like now they're trying to get people to buy supplements saying that you know oh they can shed the vaccine just by, you know, and give you all these horrible things from this gene altering mRNA you know, just if you touch them and just to sell their stupid supplements. The and, blood transfusion stories. Yeah, all that. And so if you played onto that and be like, yeah, you know, I'm leaking these documents. This is true. And the only way to protect yourself is to mask. But this is secret. Don't tell anyone. This is secret. You know, don't tell, and, and they'll buy into that the same way they bought into the other anti-mask, anti-vax nonsense, and then charge them 150 bucks for the information. Cindy, I am not looking to join the club. I am not joining the grifter club. <laughs> then no. They, they like the grift, though. If you charge them money, they're like, oh, my God, this has to be true. I have to think we can figure out a way to do it with integrity. I just haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> I don't know about the integrity part for me because, you know, my mind is working where it shouldn't work and trying to develop a microbial biofilm. I can literally spray at people and claim self-defense that covers their mouth and nose and just be like, fuck it. I'm closing that pie hole. I'm imagining a <laughs> Spider-Man-like substance right now. Just like, yeah. Like, like, like an ejaculate of biofilm. <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly like you just spider web and, and just run away <laughs> right and be like oh my god the mrna mutated me it, it's a startle response i spray this shit now <laughs> no but in, in all seriousness i don't know i don't know i don't i have left myself really open in 2023 to just observing the weirdness and engaging really honestly and checking in at the end of this year about how absurd it is. And then if it's really absurd, need to make some decisions about my life. That's, that's where I'm at. I, I have to go in like 
I won't plan past 2023. I can't do that. So I, I start planning in like months at a time now is usually how I do it is I'm I go by months. And then each day when I wake up, I'm literally about that day. I can't do much more than that. Because I don't know what our country looks like long term. I don't know what like the public health system looks like long term. So it's really hard to engage in any sort of planning in a real way. So the best I can do, I think, is sort of adhere to the values that I have each day and, and try to to bring less harm actively each day and, and do something to help the world each day. And I don't know, I have anything else that I can offer right now. So that's sort of the best that I do. And that's okay to not know and just be in the present. And I mean, that's a really great way to cope, to deal with what, with all the unknown. There's so much uncertainty, right? If anything that we can be certain about is the uncertainty because everything got flipped upside down as of 2020. Well, and in recognizing capacity limitations, I do need to end this for the night because I have to work tomorrow and I've been very tired this week and this weekend. Um, so I appreciate that every everyone came tonight, um, but I'm very tired and need to sort of head out. So thank you for coming tonight and we will be thank back you, next everyone. Sunday at the same time. So um, until then, uh, masks up and spider webs flinging. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>